Welcome to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, February 13th. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker, and here is our first story. Innovative music program engages students of color. Hear My Voice focuses on hip-hop, the music industry. This is by Grace King out of Iowa City. A new music program that started with a question, what would it take to get more students of color involved in music? is a place where Jamie Soto, 16, can unapologetically express himself. The program, called Hear My Voice, is a venue for aspiring musicians to cultivate their talent outside traditional Eurocentric music education historically offered in schools, said Soto, a student at Liberty High School. While about 25% of students participate in music programs in high school, that number is startlingly white, said Annie Savage, a music teacher at Liberty High. It's especially troublesome in the Iowa City Community School District, where the enrollment of students of color is almost 50%, she said. Students in Hear My Voice, also offered at City High, are some of the most heartbreakingly talented musicians we have in our public school system, Savage said. The class focuses on hip-hop, a genre characterized by its strong rhythmic beat and a rapping vocal track that originated among black, Latino, and Caribbean youth in the 1970s. Outside class, these students spend hours a day writing bars or lyrics showing a command of linguistics that I don't think you see in language arts classrooms, Savage said. Through their music, students take risks, tell stories, rhyme, and communicate humor, irony, and marginalization, expressing their raw intellectual ability, Savage said. Students don't need to know how to play an instrument or how to read music, which is historically a barrier to school music programs. That's not what wins Grammys, an award presented by the Recording Academy of the United States that honors the most successful musicians. What happens in the typical music classroom is so different from what happens in the music industry, Savage said. When did the classroom get so far removed from this multi-billion dollar industry, she asked. This is why Hear My Voice also incorporates music industry literacy, Savage said. Last week, the class visited United Action for Youth, a youth services center in Iowa City, where students learned how to use a recording studio. There are 15 students in the school's Hear My Voice who are handpicked for the class. Students either audition for the class or show off their talent at a spring talent show hosted by Liberty High's Black and Latino Student Unions. Michaela Bryant, 15, a sophomore at Liberty High, said Hear My Voice is a safe place for her to share her feelings through music. Ryan Owen, 15, also a sophomore, said there is freedom in songwriting and he's proud of what he's achieved as part of the class. Another new music program, called Free Strings, is an ensemble that meets before school and plays American roots and pop music, Savage said. Students learn how to improvise, sing harmony, and play music by ear. Free Strings has been a major part of my life, bringing me into a world of new music styles, wonderful people, and my own instrument, a dulcimer. It's literally a cardboard box with a stick on it, said Ruby Frank, 17, a junior at Liberty High. Our next article is Iowa wrongly paid out $129 million in jobless aid. Little was from fraud, but state recovering less of that. By Clark Hoffman. The state of Iowa paid out $129 million more last year than it should have in unemployment benefits, or 64 times the overpayments made in 2017. According to newly disclosed state data, 89% of the overpayments made last year 
were not the result of unemployment fraud, but of state decisions that were reversed on appeal or innocent mistakes made by Iowans seeking benefits. The information on overpayments is reported each year by Iowa Workforce Development, the state agency that is responsible for handling most aspects of unemployment insurance. The most recent report is for fiscal 2022, which ended on June 30, 2022. The department's annual reports illustrate the full extent of the overpayment issue, with the percentages shown here based on the agency's raw numbers, not rounded figures. Total overpayments are up 6,086 percent since 2017. The total amount of unemployment insurance overpayments was just over $2 million in 2017. In 2022, the total was $129.3 million, which represents an increase of 6,086% over the past five years. In one year alone, the the overpayments increased 103% from $63.7 million in 2021 to $129.3 million in 2022. Non-fraud cases account for much of the increase. The overpayments due to error and not attributed to fraud increased 1,159% two years ago from $4.7 million in 2020 to $59.7 million in 2021. In 2022, these non-fraud overpayments increased again by 93% to $115.5 million. Fraud-related overpayments spiked last year. Overpayments resulting from fraud remained relatively flat in 2020 and 2021. Then in 2022, fraud-related overpayments soared 242% from just over $4 million the previous year to $13.8 million. Iowa's recovery of money lost to fraud is down. In looking at the last three fiscal years, Iowa paid out a total of $203.6 million in unemployment benefits that it shouldn't have. The total amount recovered by the state in those three years was only $33.4 million. In fact, Iowa's recovery of money in cases of fraud actually dropped in 2022 from $4.6 million in each of the previous two years to $2.7 million. Department Cites Integrity Unit As it did in 2021, Iowa Workforce Development declined to make anyone on staff available for an interview about unemployment fraud and overpayments. However, in its most recent annual report, the department indicated last year's increase in overpayments was attributable to the agency's use of integrity unit personnel to assist with the handling of unemployment claims when the COVID-19 pandemic caused claims for benefits to spike. In addition, the agency provided a written statement in response to some of the questions raised by the Iowa Capital Dispatch. In that statement, the department said its overpayments include a wide range of situations in which the agency has paid out unemployment benefits beyond the amount that people are legally entitled to receive. Some of those overpayments are the result of fraud, such as someone using a stolen identity to file a claim, or someone filing for benefits after they've landed a new job, the agency said. But most of the overpayments are described by the agency as non-fraud, which the agency says are largely the result of payment approvals made by the state that are later reversed on appeal. The department says some of those non-fraud cases involve individuals who mistakenly claimed benefits for a few weeks after beginning a new job, 
not realizing they became ineligible as soon as they were hired rather than when they received their first paycheck. The department said last year's substantially larger overpayments were due to the continued investigation of pandemic-related claims in 2022. Reynolds calls state a national leader. In addition to tracking the overpayments made each year, the department tracks the collections made as a result of attempts to recover the money. The agency's data shows it has been more successful at recovering money paid out to Iowans in error than recovering money paid out to fraud. Last year, for example, it recovered $2.7 million in fraud cases, which was down significantly from the $4.6 million recovered in fraud cases each of the previous two years. But in the much larger category of non-fraud cases, Iowa recovered almost $15 million in 2022. That was four to five times the dollar amount collected in each of the previous two years. The agency did not respond to questions about the challenges the agency has faced with regard to overpayments and collections and what still needs to be done to minimize such payments and maximize recoveries. IWD will not disclose all the techniques and steps we take to detect and prevent fraudulent claims so that we do not make it easier for fraudsters to defeat our processes, the agency said in its statement. In 2021, Iowa Workforce Development declined to answer questions from the Capitol Dispatch about unemployment overpayments, indicating it was legally obligated to produce only documents in response to public records requests. The Capitol Dispatch then requested 11 weeks' worth of emails and text messages from Agency Director Beth Townsend, who had spoken publicly on the issue of fraud. The agency eventually stated that all of Townsend's work-related texts had been deleted from her phone at some point after the request for access was received and said access to Townsend's emails would cost $3,846. The Iowa Public Information Board later concluded the department violated the state's open records law and then dismissed the Capitol Dispatch's complaint. In doing so, the board cited the agency's promise to update its policies on record retention. In its statement this week, the agency said it had won national recognition for working with other states to protect the integrity of the unemployment claims process. I was once again a national leader when it comes to preserving the integrity, efficiency, and cost savings in our critical unemployment system, Governor Kim Reynolds said last April when the award was announced. Townsend said at the time that the integrity of Iowa's unemployment insurance system is and always will be central to our mission of serving Iowans. This article first appeared in the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Our next headline is Landowners Take on Eminent Domain for CO2 Routes. Iowa House Republicans may introduce pipeline bills soon. This is by Caleb McCullough. Out of Des Moines Bureau, landowners and environmental activists gathered in the Iowa Capitol last week seeking to lobby legislators to restrict carbon dioxide capture pipelines that are in the works across the state. Dressed in red and sporting signs and pins decrying the use of eminent domain and CO2 pipelines, the activists have become a recurring site at the Capitol as they hope to persuade lawmakers to slow the march of three pipeline companies seeking permission from the Iowa Utilities Board to capture carbon from Iowa ethanol plants and shuttle it underground to repositories in other states. Proposed pipeline-related legislation in this session mostly has come from Senator Jeff Taylor, a Republican from Sioux Center, though none of the bills he has proposed has advanced. Taylor has filed five bills related to pipeline restrictions. 
Senate File 100 requires pipeline companies seeking eminent domain permission to disclose investors. Senate File 101 eliminates granting eminent domain authority for hazardous liquid pipelines. Senate File 102 appeals the law allowing access to land for surveys for proposed pipelines. Senate File 103 requires pipeline companies to gain permission from landowners before entering its easement negotiations. And Senate File 104 requires pipeline companies to have 90% of easements granted voluntarily before using eminent domain. Taylor's crusade to restrict the power of pipeline companies is based on support for landowners' rights, he said, not in opposition to the companies or their mission. He said he's sympathetic to the effort to bolster the ethanol industry, but he opposes the use of eminent domain to acquire easements to achieve it. I'm not necessarily opposed to people having those pipelines run through their land, but it should be voluntary, he said. It should not be using the power of government to force them or or coerce them into granting an easement. The constitutional standard is eminent domain for public use. This isn't a public use. It's not a public utility, he added. Taylor's bills are filed in the Senate Commerce Committee, and the activists said they were hoping to encourage the committee's chair, Senator Whalen Brown, a Republican from Osage, to schedule public hearings. Democratic process involves subcommittees where people can weigh in and express their opinions, and denying that to people who are impacted by the biggest things happening to Iowa is a disservice to all Iowans, said Jess Mazur, Conservation Program Coordinator for the Iowa Chapter of the Sierra Club. Brown did not respond to a request for comment. Landowners want to restrict eminent domain. The bill banning eminent domain for pipeline companies was the chief interest of the coalition gathered at the Capitol, many of whom are refusing to sign voluntary easement negotiations with the pipeline companies seeking to build through their land. Carbon dioxide pipelines are regulated, excuse me, regulated by the Iowa Utilities Board. The companies would have the authority of eminent domain, the taking of private property with compensation for projects that benefit the public, if granted by the Utilities Board. Two of the developers have asked for that permission. A third, planning a route that includes Lynn County, has not filed an application yet. Opponents argue that, as privately owned projects, the pipelines don't don't serve a public good and should be denied the authority. It's really strongly offensive to us as people when the government is going to allow our land to be condemned just for the sake of private profits and not for the good of our communities, said Jessica Wiskus, a landowner from Lynn County. Landowners also said they felt harassed by pipeline companies' surveyors going on their land without permission. Dan Wall from Dickinson County is one of several landowners being sued by Summit Carbon Solutions for refusing entry to his land. They've demanded since day one that they're going to take my land whether I agree to it or not, Wall said. Iowa law gives pipeline companies and public utilities the right to survey land along a proposed route after giving 10 days' notice by mail to the landowner. Under those conditions, the entry is not deemed a trespass. But a lawyer representing Wall and several other landowners is arguing in court that the law allowing entry is unconstitutional. One of Taylor's bills would remove that provision entirely. I think the pipeline companies have a point, Taylor said. The way I read Iowa Code, they seem to have that right at the moment. But I don't think that's proper. I don't think it's appropriate. So I would like to see the law change so that would be trespass without permission. Ethanol industry backs pipelines. Three CO2 pipeline projects are being proposed in the state. 
Summit Carbon Solutions Midwest Carbon Express plans 680 miles of pipeline across 29 northern, western, and central counties. Wolf Carbon Solutions Pipeline would cover four counties in eastern Iowa. Navigator CO2 Ventures Heartland Greenway would cover 900 miles from the northwest to southeast corners of the state, with offshoots along the way. The projects are intended to capture carbon dioxide emitted from ethanol plants to store deep underground in either Illinois or North Dakota in an attempt to lower emissions created by the plants. For the ethanol industry, reliance on CO2 pipelines could be the difference between survival and closing down, Iowa Renewable Fuels Association Executive Director Monty Shaw told lawmakers. States such as California and Oregon have mandated clean fuel standards, and federal tax credits bolstered by the recent Inflation Reduction Act will improve ethanol's profitability if they meet certain low-carbon levels. Shaw said these pressures mean without a mechanism of lowering the ethanol's carbon intensity, ethanol production would likely move to a state where plants have access to carbon pipelines. This is a very real, very new dynamic in our economics that is going to make or break ethanol production over the next five years, he said at a hearing of the House Environmental Protection Committee. And Iowa has the most to gain from this new economic reality, and it has the most to lose from not aligning. But to be built, the pipelines need to go across hundreds of miles of private land, and some landowners are not ready to allow their land to be used for the projects. Summit and Navigator have both indicated an intent to use eminent domain, if granted, for the projects, but they have not finalized the extent of their request as they work to obtain voluntary easements. Summit Carbon Solutions, which is the farthest along in the permitting process, has received voluntary easements for more than two-thirds of the proposed route in the state, or 1,060 Iowa landowners, Summit spokesperson Jesse Harris said in an email. This overwhelming level of support tells us Iowa landowners along the route view the project as critical to supporting the state's most important industries, ethanol and agriculture, Harris said. We look forward to continuing to work with landowners, stakeholders, and policymakers to advance our nearly $987 million investment in Iowa's future. Andrew Bates, a spokesperson for Navigator, said in an emailed statement that Iowa has one of the most robust, thorough processes already in place for pipeline construction, and the company does not want to see changes to that process. We are committed to working collaboratively with landowners and negotiating in good faith to secure as much of the project footprint in a voluntary fashion as possible, he said. Representatives for Wolf Carbon Solutions, on the other hand, have said they don't plan to use eminent domain for the project. Wolf intends to build a pipeline connecting ADM plants, including the one in Lynn County. The company has been holding public information meetings and is, expect, excuse me, is expected to file its application with state regulators soon. Taylor said he has received pushback from ethanol companies in his northwest Iowa district for introducing the legislation. They're primarily looking at it from a point of view of making money for themselves and for their companies and for their co-ops, and that's fine, but I have a broader perspective, he said, looking out for good government, looking out for constitutional government. House Republicans to Introduce Legislation While Taylor's proposals have not seen action in the Senate, Republican House Speaker Pat Grassley of New Hartford said he expects House Republicans will file a bill addressing the use of eminent domain and carbon pipelines, but he left details sparse on its contents. He said he hasn't had a conversation with the full House Republican caucus on what they would support. 
I want to have a conversation with the caucus before I come out and say what that would be, he said. I want to make sure there's a level of comfort. Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat from Coralville, said discussions around pipeline regulations have been happening without input from Democrats despite their interest in finding a bipartisan policy to address landowners' concerns. Republicans have not been willing to have that conversation, he said. They're trying to handle things purely internally, so until there is a decision by Republican leadership to try to have a bipartisan dialogue about this, there's no compromise possible. The Sierra Club's Mazur said she thinks there is enough support to pass a bill restricting eminent domain rights for pipeline companies. We have enough votes in both chambers between the Democrats and Republicans to get these bills passed, she said. It's going to be, is there a will from leadership to put landowners and Iowans over these pipeline companies? Iowa landowners and anti-pipeline activists gather Wednesday in the Iowa Capitol in Des Moines before speaking to landowners. I'm sorry, before speaking to lawmakers. Our next story from today's section is new senior housing development coming to Iowa City's west side. Also, Lynn County's Trails Association gives $100,000 for 4th Street Trail construction. The new senior housing development is coming to the west side of Iowa City near St. Andrew Presbyterian Church on Gathering Place Lane. The Iowa City Council last week gave third and final approval to rezoning 31.2 acres east of Camp Cardinal Road and north of Gathering Place Lane to allow for the development of a senior housing community. The proposed senior living development would consist of 35 single-family homes, 8 duplex units, 38 multifamily units, 20 townhome-style units, and one assisted living building with 32 beds. The land is one of the few large undeveloped areas within the city. Danielle Sitzman, Development Services Coordinator, told the Council last month during the rezoning ordinance's first reading. The application was submitted by Welch Design and Development on behalf of Cedar Falls-based Western House Independent Living Services. Chris Hansen, Western Home Chief Executive Officer, told the Council last month Western Home serves about 1,400 residents, mostly in Cedar Falls. We are excited to be down here, Hansen said. This parcel allows us to create a community inside of the greater community of Iowa City, Hansen added. Next steps include design review, site plan reviews, and applying for building permits. This is one of a handful of senior housing developments in the works in Iowa City. Other approved senior living projects include Hickory Trail Estates, Monument Hills, and NEX Senior Housing, which will have 36 affordable units. Fourth Street Trail Project gets a boost. The Lynn County Trails Association in January contributed $100,000 to the City of Cedar Rapids' 4th Street Trail Project. President Tom Peffer presented a ceremonial check to the mayor and city manager celebrating the association's contribution of $100,000 for use in funding part of the project. This project is a vital connection linking the future light line bridge and trail system into downtown Cedar Rapids, City Manager Jeff Pomerantz wrote in a January memo to the City Council. The Alliant Energy Light Line Bridge is the pedestrian bike bridge connecting Czech Village and the new Bohemia District as part of the $20 million Grassroots Connect CR initiative. Cedar Rapids was one of three government agencies to receive a contribution after the Trail Group's fundraising campaign. College Community Pepple Renewal Vote 
Voters in the College Community School District will be voting on the renewal of the physical plant and equipment levy tax used to maintain and repair district facilities. The vote to extend the levy is March 7th. The current levy expires in 2024, so voters are being asked to renew the existing funding source for another 10 years. The proposal would not result in a property tax increase, according to district officials. The current physical plant and equipment levy has been in place at 67 cents since 1983, so a renewal would maintain the current tax rate. The rate collected is one-half the maximum rate for the voter-approved levy allowed by law. Through the generous support of our community, we have been able to address the new facility needs related to district growth, District Chief Financial Officer Angie Morrison said in a news release. The physical plant and equipment levy allows us to continue the work of ensuring all facilities remain up-to-date and ready to respond to the needs of our students, families, and residents through planned maintenance and upgrades. Recent physical plant and equipment levy expenditures include buses, maintenance equipment, band instruments, playground equipment, classroom furniture, parking lots, sidewalks, road resurfacing, safety and security equipment, and energy efficiency initiatives. This levy is important to not only continue the upkeep and maintenance of our heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, roofs, and other large maintenance items, Superintendent Doug Wheeler said. It also will allow us to enhance some of our buildings that have not been recently renovated as part of other projects to refresh items like carpet, lighting, paint, and furnishings. This came from Government Notes, which is published Mondays and contains updates from area government bodies. Now we'll turn to the opinion section with a guest column by David Wendell entitled Civil Disobedience Against Slavery in Iowa. Martin Luther King Jr.'s birth has been observed every third Monday of January since 1986 and was January 16th this year. It is a day when we acknowledge the leading civil rights leader of the 20th century who risked his life eyeing the prize of equality for all. The movement he led was largely in the South, with civil disobedience in cities such as Montgomery, Alabama, Atlanta, and Washington, D.C. But what about Salem, Iowa, Grinnell, and Denmark, Iowa? These were some of the leading communities conducting acts of civil disobedience during the mid-19th century. Slavery was dividing the nation in the 1840s after Iowa became a state, and the residents of California petitioned to join the Union. Declaring they would be a free state prohibiting slavery, southern states realized this would tilt the balance of Congress in favor of the North and raised objections, threatening to secede or band together and form their own nation. To prevent this, Illinois Senator Stephen A. Douglas, who would later defeat Abraham Lincoln as his opponent for re-election, proposed a solution to the vexing problem. He drafted legislation that would allow California to join as a free state but to supplicate the South, also enacted the Fugitive Slave Act, which stated that federal and state law enforcement of every state, free or pro-slavery, must assist in locating and sending escaped slaves back to their masters. To reinforce that, it furthermore added that any civilians who aided and abetted escaped slaves were subject to fines and jail time, or, if caught by slave bounty hunters, could even face death without penalty for the bounty hunter. Congress passed the bill in September 1850, and the new Fugitive Slave Act became federal law. Seeing this as an unjust violation of civil and human rights, many Iowans joined in acts of civil disobedience, violating the Fugitive Slave Act and putting their lives and livelihoods on the line. 
Escaped slaves would make their way north by traveling mostly at night and hiding in attics, basements, or secret crawl spaces within abolitionists' home. The network of paths and and refuges spread from the south and through border territories and states such as Kansas, Nebraska, Missouri, and Iowa. The escaped slaves would enter the state southwest of Tabor, near the Nebraska Territory border, and make their way through Lewis, Des Moines, Grinnell, and finally at Clinton, where they could cross into Illinois. Another popular route lay to the east, with escapees crossing the border into Iowa at towns such as Farmington or Croton. Abolitionists would greet the contraband as they arrived at their homes and provide food and shelter until they were ready to proceed to the next link on what came to be known as the Underground Railroad. To prevent being charged with giving asylum to a criminal, the abolitionists would dig a cellar space accessible by secret trap doors beneath the house or, in some cases, install fake walls with a room behind it to house their secret guests. When bounty hunters arrived, the homeowner or family would simply sit at the kitchen table or in front of fire in the fireplace or stove and act as though they knew nothing about the missing men or women. So well disguised were the trap doors and fake walls that few escaped slaves were found. During the reign of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, less than 500 escapees who made it to the north were ever returned. Once bounty hunters had parted, the abolitionist hosts would frequently disguise the escaped slave as a woman in mourning, dressed in black, or hide them beneath a stack of grain and carry them by buggy to the next link, where they would be fed and protected until finally crossing the Mississippi River. The exact number of former slaves who made their way to freedom, or at least the very least acceptance, in Canada is not known, but it is estimated that approximately 100,000 were successful in their odyssey along the underground. The end of the American Civil War and the enactment of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution rendered this network no longer necessary, but remnants remain. The Todd House stands in Tabor, where the Reverend John Todd hid escapees as their first welcome to Iowa. The Jordan House is a landmark in West Des Moines, where James C. Jordan served as a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And the Henderson Lueling House in Salem and Parsonage of Reverend Asa Turner along with parishioner Theron Trowbridge of Denmark, all stand today as reminders of those who took a stand 160 years ago, just as Dr. King did 60 years ago, for equality among all peoples everywhere. These mansions or modest dwellings can be visited as museums or private homes in each community. Every one of them were vital stations on the Underground Railroad, which enabled so many to see the prize. Remember them as we commemorate Black History Month. David V. Wendell is a Marian historian, author, and special events coordinator specializing in American history. And now we're going to turn to the obituaries. Our first is Joseph Joe Konechny, Jr. of Cedar Rapids. His survivors include his loving wife of 69 years, Betty, children, Scott, spouse Lori, Susan, and Rick, grandchildren, Brianne, spouse Jason, Nicolette, and Nicholas, spouse Kaylee, and great-grandchildren Maddox and Hendricks. Joe was preceded in death by his parents, Joseph Sr. and Rose Konechny, a brother, and his grandparents. Joe was born March 11, 1933, in rural Fairfax. He graduated from Lisbon High School in 1951 and served three years in the U.S. Navy Reserves. Joe worked at Latner Boiler Company for 46 years as a receiving clerk and plant manager. In his later years, he worked at Banjo Equipment in the accounting department. Joe belonged to Lodge Prokop Velke 
137 CSA, and Lodge 13 WFLA. He had also served as president of the Czech National Cemetery. Joe played the piano and enjoyed singing. He also enjoyed going to collector shows and displaying his 1961 Corvette at car shows. Finally, he enjoyed playing cards and watching the Boston Red Sox and Green Bay Packers. Joseph Joe Konechny, Jr., 89, of Cedar Rapids, passed away on Friday, February 10th. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday at Papik Cuba Funeral Home East, 1228 2nd Street Southeast, with Chaplain William Warhover officiating. Burial will follow at Czech National Cemetery. Visitation will be after 10 a.m. Wednesday at the funeral home. Eleanor Anna Marie Sukow of Cedar Rapids, a resident at Emory Place, went to be with the Lord on Friday, February 10th. Visitation is from 4 to 6 p.m. Thursday, February 16th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel State Room. Funeral service is 10.30 a.m. Friday, February 17th, at First Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids. Interment is at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Eleanor was born to Elmer Sr. and Emma Hessenius in Vinton on July 1, 1931. She worked at the Cedar Rapids Children's Home. Eleanor was united in marriage to Willis Sukow on August 16, 1953 at St. Paul's Lutheran Church at Postville. She was a homemaker. Family was her top priority. She loved family get-togethers and spoiling her grandchildren. She enjoyed embroidery, sewing, gardening, following the Iowa Hawkeyes and Iowa State Cyclones, and most of all, her cat, Sassy. She was a member of First Lutheran Church for 67 years. Surviving are her four children, Sharon, spouse Ed Zilka, Larry, spouse Julianne, Gary, spouse Sherry, all of Cedar Rapids, and Barbara, spouse Leroy Wittenberg of Springville. Nine grandchildren, Angela Zilka, Michelle, spouse Brandon Robbs, Christy Zilka, Rachel, spouse Jordan Richardson, Reese Zukow, and, fi- and fiancé Julie Cox, Amanda Wittenberg, Julie, spouse John Bowers, Michael, spouse Caitlin Wittenberg, and Nathan Wittenberg, and fiancé Emelyn Foster, eight great-grandchildren, Liberty, Addison, Gabriella Robbs, Talon Sukow, Josephine Wittenberg, Mia, Gina, and Ella Bowers. Also surviving is one sister, Evelyn Buell of Cedar Rapids. She was preceded in death by her parents, husband Willis, infant brother Elmo, brothers Elmer Jr. and Eldon, and one sister, Esther. Memorials may be directed to First Lutheran Church in Cedar Rapids. Gladys L. Sheets Werner, 96, of Van Horn, passed away on Saturday, February 11th, at Virginia Gay Nursing and Rehab in Vinton. A visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, February 15th, at Salem United Methodist Church in Van Horn. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m., also at the church, with the Rev. Colleen Queener officiating. Interment will be held at Salem Cemetery, Van Horn. Phillips Funeral Home, I'm sorry, Phillips Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. Gladys was born on October 1, 1926, at Luzerne, the daughter of Louis and Laura Rabe Sheets, and graduated from Belle Plaine High School with the class of 1944. 
She was united in marriage to Richard Werner on February 1, 1948, in Van Horn. Gladys and Dick farmed in the Van Horn area all their married life. They ran a farrow-to-finish hog operation, as well as raising cattle and poultry. Gladys was a very active member of Salem United Methodist Church, serving as chairman of the UMW for many years, as well as teaching Sunday school for over 16 years. She served as a 4-H leader and Cub Scout den mother in her younger years. Gladys was also active in her community as a member of the Floralia Arrangers Guild and the American Legion Auxiliary. She is survived by her daughter, Dixie Luther of Land Lakes, Florida, her son, Dean, spouse Jackie Werner of Van Horn, four grandchildren, 12 great-grandchildren, three great-great-grandchildren, and her nieces and nephews, Carol Sheets Johnson, Connie Sheets Canada, Wayne, Lyle, and Ed Sheets, and Rita Sheets Muesli. She was preceded in death by her parents, husband Richard in 2011, and siblings Leonard, Charles, Lewis, and Elmer Sheets. The family would like to thank Virginia Gay Nursing and Rehab for their comforting care the last four years. Dulcie Marie Sullivan, 67, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Friday, February 10th at her home. Visitation will be from 4 to 8 p.m. Wednesday, September, I'm sorry, February 15th at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids. Funeral service, 10 a.m. Thursday, February 16th at the funeral home. Burial will take place at Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Marie was born on December 14, 1955, the daughter of Richard and Sylvia Bywater Foreman. She graduated from Kennedy High School. Marie was united in marriage to Guy Sullivan in Cedar Rapids. She worked as a project manager in disaster restoration. Marie loved to spend time with her family. She enjoyed doing arts and crafts with all her children, grandchildren, nieces, and nephews. She loved to read and travel. Her job offered her many opportunities to see the USA and the world. Marie also enjoyed her sister's lunches, where they would resolve all the problems with the men in their lives and the world in general. She was deeply loved and will be missed. Survivors include her husband, Guy Sullivan of Cedar Rapids, children Robert Martin of Cedar Rapids, James Martin of San Francisco, California, Glenn Allen of Cedar Rapids, Heidi Allen of Cedar Rapids, and William Sullivan of Cedar Rapids. Grandchildren Levi and Liliana Martin of Vinton and Austin and Trenton Smith of Cedar Rapids. Siblings Karen Peterson of Shellsburg, Iowa, Richard Foreman of Wisconsin, Cartha Eby of Cedar Rapids, and Clayton Foreman of Toddville, as well as many wonderful nieces and nephews. Marie was preceded in death by her parents Richard and Sylvia Foreman, brother William Foreman, brother-in-law Peter Peterson, three nephews and one niece. Please share a memory of Marie at MurdochFuneralHome.com under obituaries. You're listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette, the Iowa Reading Radio Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on Iris is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now I'll finish more of today's obituaries. James Jim Hayes, 92 of Solon, passed away peacefully on Friday, February 10, 2023, at the Solon Care Center. Visitation will be from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 16th, 
at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Solon. Funeral Mass will be 10.30 a.m. Thursday, February 16th, at St. Mary's Catholic Church, with Father Charles Fladding presiding. Burial will be in St. Mary's Cemetery. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Solon is in charge of arrangements. James was born September 5, 1930, in Monticello, the son of James and Claire Hayes. He graduated from Sacred Heart High School in Monticello. James was united in marriage to Mona Lawler on September 16, 1950, at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. He had a long working career with the AAA Motor Club of Iowa, beginning in 1957. He held numerous management positions, and during the last 10 years of his career, he was the state group manager, retiring in 1995. Several of Jim's projects for Iowa were used nationally by AAA. Jim served in the U.S. Army Reserves for many years and was a 60-year member of the American Legion. Jim and his beloved wife, Mona, the love of his life, traveled to many unique destinations. He enjoyed fishing and hunting, writing, playing cards, and most of all, spending time with his family. He was a longtime volunteer with Mended Hearts at Mercy Medical Center, Cedar Rapids, as well as an active member of St. Mary's Catholic Church, serving as lector and usher. James is survived by his wife, Mona, of over 72 years, his children, Stephen, spouse Angie Hayes, Michael Hayes, Julie, spouse Mike Kasparik, Chris, spouse Linda Hayes, and Jeff, spouse Christina Hayes, seven grandchildren, eight grandchildren great-grandchildren, as well as nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, brother Jack, spouse Alice Hayes, sisters Joan, spouse Ivan Pyle, and Anne Hayes. Memorials may be directed to St. Mary's Catholic Church or to Hospice of Mercy in his name. P.S. Thanks to the great people at Solon Retirement Village. Online condolences may be expressed to the family at broshchapel.com. Luann M. Hudson, 67, of Mechanicsville, formerly of Springville, passed away February 10th after a lengthy illness. Luann is survived by her daughter, Holly, and fiancé, David, a granddaughter, Tori, and two great-grandchildren, Aslan and Brendan. Luann is also survived by siblings, Chris, David, Deb, Dennis, Merv, spouse Sharon, Michael, Penny, spouse Braun, Donna, Ginger, and Teresa also survived by two special nieces, Angel and Michaela, and nephew Bud, as well as many other nieces and nephews. Luann was preceded in death by her parents, Edward and Donna, and brother Eddie. Per Luann's wishes, there will be no services. Family will hold a celebration of life at a later date. Douglas Dale Gosh, 66, of Davenport, died peacefully in his sleep on Wednesday, February 8th. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Halligan McCabe DeVries Funeral Home in Davenport is assisting with arrangements. Doug was born on January 1, 1957, in Cedar Rapids. He graduated from Cedar Rapids Washington High School, where he started as a varsity football and baseball player. Doug eventually moved to the Quad Cities, where he worked at Harker's, the Edward Don and Company, and John Deere. He enjoyed watching his beloved Cubs along with the Bears, Bulls, and Hawkeyes. He also enjoyed playing golf with his brother Dave and friends Craig McCullough and E.J. Squire. Doug is survived by his loving and caring wife Stacy, sons Logan and Andrew, stepchildren Brittany, Lucy, and Brooklyn, grandchildren Caden, Scotty, Anthony, and Sophia, his brother Dave, 
niece Jessica, and nephews Brian, Ben, and Nick. He was preceded in death by his parents Carol and Dale Ghosh. Online condolences may be made to Doug's family by viewing his obituary at hmdfuneralhome.com. Okay, we're going to turn to sports and start with the Iowa men's basketball. Defense rebounding win the day. Hawkeyes struggled shooting but did enough to trap the Gophers 68-56. to This is by Nathan Ford. Out of Minneapolis, Iowa dealt with the extremes of this Big Ten men's basketball season in the last four days. Sunday's trip to the conference's cellar was less hostile than Thursday's Mackey Arena adventure, but by no means comfortable. Instead of shooting their way past last-place Minnesota, whose record is 7-16 and 1-12 in the Big Ten, the Hawkeyes relied on defense and rebounding. Iowa, whose record is 16-9 and 8-6 in the Big Ten, accomplished the feat, leaving Williams Arena with a 68-56 win and remaining one of eight teams with five or six league losses behind first-place Purdue. Connor McCaffrey, excuse me, Connor McCaffrey's post-game assessment of the box score. It was a weird game. We were missing layups. I don't know if I've ever seen a box score where we shot 72 shots and they only attempted 46. That's unreal. That's what we needed to do. Iowa grabbed 17 offensive rebounds and scored 15 second-chance points. It limited the Golden Gophers to 2 and 2 in those categories. The story was told on one second half possession. When Philip Rabraka, McCaffrey, and Chris Murray all chased down offensive rebounds, Aaron Eulis eventually rotating the ball back to McCaffrey for a three-pointer and 61-51 lead with 5 minutes 21 seconds to go. That was probably the swing of the game, said McCaffrey, who made just the one shot but contributed 10 rebounds, 4 assists, and 3 steals. No, a Minnesota team playing for the first time since a week-long COVID-19 pause and without injured leading scorer and rebounder Darson Garcia didn't give Iowa a Sunday stroll. Still, the Hawkeyes never trailed, and it started with defense. Tony Perkins, 7 points, 7 rebounds, 6 assists, 3 steals, stole the ball on the Gophers' second possession and converted a three-point play for an early 5-0 lead. It was 11-2, Iowa, after three and a half minutes, and the Gophers had more turnovers, three, than points. But that defensive intensity had to remain through most of the game as Minnesota stayed within 32-29 by halftime. It did. Iowa scored 14 points off 14 Gopher turnovers, including 11 steals. Things weren't going our way, said Rabraka, who finished with 16 points and 8 rebounds. Shots weren't falling. Maybe we're not getting calls that we wanted to get. But I feel like we've gotten to a point where we are mature enough to understand we've got to battle through that. Chris Murray exemplified that mentality. The Big Ten's second-leading scorer had 10 points in the first half, but was 4 of 15 from the field. The Hawkeyes as a whole shot 32.5%, including one of seven from three-point range in the game's first 20 minutes. So on the first play of the second half, Murray immediately went to work inside, posting up for an easy layup in the first seven seconds. Those were the first two of his 18 second-half points on 8 of 12 shooting, and he did it from all areas of the floor as he typically does. I knew that even though I wasn't making shots in the first half, I knew that in the second half I'd be able to get looks and that I would convert them, even if they were tough shots, Murray said. I knew my capabilities of making those shots. Honestly, every single shot I took felt good, especially from the three-point line. 
so I knew that eventually they would go in, just kept being confident in myself. Murray, like his team, remained engaged in other areas through his shooting frustration. He totaled 14 rebounds, 7 offensive, and 3 steals. I was really proud of him because he missed 11 shots, which he normally doesn't do in the first half, Iowa coach, head coach Fran McCaffrey said. The ball was spinning out on him. Alley-oops, offensive rebound, putbacks, isolation layup at the end of the half. Those shots normally go in. So for him to come back and finish it off with 28 and 14 is really impressive to me. Says a lot about him. The Hawkeyes have another struggling foe Thursday, an Ohio State team that has lost 11 of its last 12. The lone win, a 93-77 triumph over Iowa, which will want to bring Sunday's recipe for success back to Iowa City, perhaps with a few more shots falling. And we'll turn to women's basketball. Unrelenting offense. All 14 players score, led by Davis and McCabe, off the bench. Iowa rolls 111-57. to This is by Jeff Linder. There was no hangover, no letdown, and no mercy. Number 5 Iowa piled up its most points in a Big Ten's women basketball game and the second most in school history in a 111-57 feel-good route of Rutgers before a crowd of 13,150 Sunday afternoon at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. We bounced back pretty well after a disappointing loss Thursday at Indiana, Iowa coach Lisa Bluter said. All 14 Hawkeyes played, and when Sharon Goodman converted off a feed from Shatea Wettering with 45 seconds left, all of them scored. On a day in which none of the Hawkeyes shot more than seven times, Molly Davis scored a season-high 17 points. My teammates were getting me the ball, said the trans- uh, senior transfer from Central Michigan. I came in and tried not to think about it too much. The defense was sagging off me and my teammates. Davis was one of five Hawkeyes. Oops, I'm sorry. Let me, let me read that last sentence again. The defense was sagging off me, and my teammates were finding me. Davis was one of five Hawkeyes to reach double figures. Caitlin Clark posted 15 points and 10 assists. Monica Cisnano tallied 14. Taylor McCabe, 12. And Hannah Stolke, 10. A freshman from Nebraska, McCabe got one of the biggest crowd responses on her third-quarter three-point barrage. It was pretty fun, I can't lie, McCabe said. I could hear it from the bench. My teammates expect that from me. I proved them right, and I proved my coaches right. Iowa, who's 20-5 and overall and 12-2 and in the Big Ten, led from the get-go. The Hawkeyes scored the first seven points and led 29-18 after one quarter, capping it on Davis's drive and bucket at the horn. We ran one of our end-of-the-shot-clock plays, Davis said. I faked the ball to Caitlin, the defense bit. I got a floater, and I got a really nice roll. The best was yet to come. Iowa put together scoring strings of 8, 11, and 9 points in the second quarter and led 60-28 at halftime. McCabe knocked down four three-pointers in the last four minutes of a 37-point third quarter, and it was 97-40 with 10 minutes to go. The Hawkeyes' old record for points in a Big Ten game was 108, reached twice, including earlier this season against Penn State. The record for points in all games is 115 against Evansville this season. It's a bit ironic that they tagged Rutgers, whose record is 10-16 and 4-10, and and traditionally a stellar defensive outfit, for 111. Iowa's previous largest margin against the Scarlet Knights was 14 points. Rutgers is operating with a roster of eight players, and Iowa, Iowa was the superior team on this day by a wide, wide margin. 
I know Rutgers coach Conquise Washington is rebuilding the program, Bluter said. She will recruit and get that program back up. Iowa built a 44-20 advantage on the glass, and Clark's 10 assists led the Hawkeyes' total of 29. Sidney Affolter added six of them, Kate Martin five, and Iowa's bench scored 61 points. That's important to us, Bluter said. It wasn't just that we won the game, it's how we won the game. The Hawkeyes host Wisconsin in their second-to-last regular season home game at 6.30 Wednesday night. Iowa then closes its season at Nebraska February 18th, at number 8 Maryland February 21st, and versus number 2 Indiana February 26th. The Big Ten tournament starts March 1st in Minneapolis. And we'll finish up with an article from the community section entitled Matthew 25 Receives a Boost in Fighting Hunger, Cedar Rapids Nonprofit Among Five Selected for Donations by Elijah DeSuis. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that name. Um, out of Cedar Rapids, the nonprofit Matthew 25 was chosen as one of five organizations to receive part of a $150,000 campaign to fight hunger across the country. As a frontline organization fighting food insecurity locally, Matthew 25 was named a 2023 recipient of $15,000 from the Simply Organic Giving Fund. The fund is a charitable arm of Simply Organic, a leader in organic herbs and spices under the Norway-Iowa-based Frontier Co-op family of brands. The $15,000 donation is part of an annual campaign that has donated a total of $725,000 since 2018 to organizations focused on fighting hunger. In addition to other initiatives, Matthew 25's Groundswell Cafe allows people to pay what they can for a meal, no questions asked, or donate extra to help others, removing the stigma around asking for help. Groundswell has provided more than 15,000 free meals using local and organic produce in the past five years. Countless people will experience food insecurity in their lives. Some may be for years at a time, some for a few months, But whatever the reason may be, everyone deserves to have access to good, healthy, organic food, said Alicia Simmons, Corporate Social Responsibility Manager for Frontier Co-op. This program also provides a channel for people to give what they can to support others in their community and reinforces how even a seemingly small gesture can make an incredible difference in one person's day or life, Simmons added. It's a unique and creative approach to addressing food insecurity in our community and we're grateful for the opportunity to help pay it forward. The Simply Organic Giving Fund receives about 150 applications per year, from which five or six recipients are selected. For the 2023 grant period, the fund selected organizations that are spearheading resource programs and initiatives to empower underserved communities facing food insecurity, including refugees, immigrants, and families in food deserts. As a co-op, Frontier gives roughly $1 million each year to causes around the world. Hungry people deserve good, healthy food. Our customers who eat free are consistently shocked that there is a place serving this high quality of meals to our struggling neighbors, said Clint Tweet Ball, founder and executive director of Matthew 25. It wouldn't happen without the care and compassion of Frontier Co-op and the Simply Organic Giving Fund. Four other recipients were named. Dion's Chicago Dream, which brings fresh, healthy produce to low-income communities in the Chicago metro, will receive $25,000. 
Emergency Food Network, which provides organic produce to local food pantries in Pierce County, Washington, will receive $40,000. Multicultural Refugee Coalition's social enterprise, New Leaf Agriculture, Agriculture, will receive $25,000 to continue to provide nutrient-dense, culturally desired produce to refugees in Austin, Texas, through weekly CSA programs and community networks. Project Worthmore's Delaney Community Farm will receive $45,000 to expand operations to continue distributing fresh, healthy produce to more than 750 refugee families in the Denver, Colorado area. The Simply Organic Giving Fund, established in 2001, was organized to support organic agricultural development. It has given over $2.35 million to projects around the world. In 2018, the brand pivoted its focus to food insecurity in the U.S. and Canada. It has since partnered with about a dozen organizations dedicated to providing food insecure communities with access to healthy organic options. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Teresa Whitaker. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. (music) 